0: Your author website is useless if people can't find it. And what is the way most people find most websites? Google, and if not Google, Bing. How can people learn about you and your books if they can't visit your website, and how can they visit your website if they can't find it? This is why ranking on Google is so important for authors in the process of making your website more search engine friendly is called search engine optimization or SEO. And SEO is exactly what we're gonna talk about in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books and change the world with writing worth talking about. I'm your host, the Vulcan of book marketing, Thomas Umstadt, Jr., and today we are joined by someone who's been doing SEO for over a decade. He's a DMA-certified search engine optimizer and is the CEO of Fistbump Media. Dan King, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast.
1: Thank you very much, and uh, happy to be here.
0: So how does Google rank websites? That's the million-dollar question, right? (laughs)
1: Yeah, that is kind of a million dollar question. You know, and I think ultimately it gets down to keywords, right? You know, it's it's the content that drives everything on the internet.
0: Yeah. The, so Google looks at I, I remember when Google first came out. I was in speech and debate in high school. And before that we had Alta Vista and we had Hotbot and Ask Jeeves. There's all of these really terrible search engines. And what those search engines looked at was what are called meta keywords, kind of the keywords that the person who wrote the page said, hey, these are the keywords this page should rank for. How Amazon still works, actually, is how all of those old search engines worked. And Google was like, people are lying (laughs) when they type those keywords. They're all putting business and those other search engines are not giving good results. So we're going to look at two things instead. We're going to look at the keywords that are on the actual page. So they ignored meta keywords, which was this big controversy. This was the big controversy of 2002 um, amongst web web designers. So the big kind of revolution. And then the other thing that they looked at is how many links are pointing to a web page and how many links are pointing to those web pages. So if lots of other pages on the internet vote that your page is influential, you're going to rank higher. And that was the secret sauce. Uh, two of the three kind of secret developments that made Google uh, a multi-billion-dollar company. The third development had to do with advertising, and it's outside of the scope of this <laughs> episode. But um, and so let's talk about both of those things because those are still true today. After twenty years, Google still looks on your page for keywords, and it looks at people linking to your site. So let's talk about on-page SEO, which is the technical term and uh, what are things that you need to put on your page for it to rank well on Google?
1: Well, I think one of the big things that I see a lot is, you know, we, we talk about the keywords, but uh, there used to be the time, you know, kind of going back in history where, you know, I see, I see blog posts on websites where people would just kind of stuff the keyword as many times as they can onto a page or different variations or whatever. And that's not the case. You know, I think ultimately, What Google is looking for, and this is the this is the big filter that I try to put everything through when I'm when I'm working on any kind of content on on a website, and that's uh, how useful is it for a user, right? So you still want to be able to answer questions because if you look at search from Google's perspective they have people coming to them looking for answers to questions, right? And so they wanna to try to provide the best answers to those questions that they can. So it's not just about kind of put a key word on there, but those key words are really kind of key elements. They're gonna send the right signals, right? So it's, it's about how do you create the best resources uh, around those kinds of keywords and those questions that people are asking the search
0: engines for. That's right, because the now Google looks at another thing. It doesn't just look at the words on the page, and it doesn't just look at the links pointing to the site. They have a third piece of intelligence, which is why no one can compete with them, and that is all of the visitor data. Right, They create Google Analytics. They have access to that data. They created Chrome. They have access to that data. Every time you don't read a Google, you know, privacy policy. There's no privacy in that policy. <laughs> it is a, it is a policy where Google gets all of the data. And so they know how long people are spending on a web page and whether, and they are able to use that data to determine if that web page answered the question that they had. So if you're typing in a search phrase, you're wanting to learn, how do I make spaghetti? And you go to the first page and it doesn't have the answer and you go back to Google and you click on the next result. Google knows that. And that user data is also part of the algorithm. So when we talk about how Google ranks web pages and why it's the million dollar question, it's that it's not just one one thing or two things. There are tens of thousands of things that all influence the algorithm. And don't worry, we're not going to go over all 10,000 of them, partly because some of them are secret, but there's a few things that matter a lot. Right?
1: Yeah, and I, I definitely think that things like bounce rate time on site, you know, the, those things that you're talking about, there are, are crucial in factors, you know, and I see a lot of people, uh, you, you see these websites where they take like one blog post, and they turn it into uh, you know, 10 different pages, right? You know, where click here to read, continue reading and stuff. And it's not about doing that kind of stuff. I think you still want to be really user-friendly with how you build and how you develop your site. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, think about, you know, factors like how do you keep the person on your site? How do you keep them reading the page longer? You know, uh, visiting other pages and, you know, things like that.
0: Yeah, having a multi-part blog series is a classic mistake of people who are following bad advice. So there, Or just old advice, right? There was this belief around 2010 that blog posts should be short because people don't have time to read short blog posts. And so some people still believe that in 2020. It's like, do you know where short blog posts live? They live on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on MeWe, on Parler. And that is not what you put on your blog now. What Google is looking for is a definitive answer to a question. And if that means it's a 5,000 word post, it's a 5,000-word post, my most popular blog post of all time, 5,000 words. That's a lot of words. <laughs> that's you know a 10- or 15-minute read to get through that blog post, and that's the one with a million views. And so if, so you have to be careful uh, what advice you're listening to. Uh, but it, we have a lot to say about blogs, but first, we need to talk about the homepage because that's the first page most people approach. And it's a little bit unique in that, in general, when you're optimizing pages f- to rank for Google, you start with what people are searching for. And then you create the page to match what people are searching for. Another common mistake is, I've created a page, now I'm going to do SEO on the page. And I think part of this is that the SEO features, if you're using WordPress or Wix or Squarespace, are always at the end of the post. And so people think, oh, SEO is the thing I do last. (laughs) It's like, no, that's what people who don't rank on Google do. You know, the people who do rank scroll past the empty text window and they do that SEO section first and then they create the post to rank. Uh, but the homepage is not that way. Homepages are a little bit different. And so uh, what advice do you have for getting your homepage uh, to rank on Google?
1: Well, and there's two things. Uh, you know, w- one is one is kind of general for really just about any page that I, that I look at. And that's like exactly what you're talking about, is it's doing that keyword research and stuff right up front. Right. I do that and I d- identify the keywords that I want to try to target uh, before I even write a word of content for the page or put an image or anything like that on the page, because that is really going to help kind of uh, provide the direction for what that content should look like. Right. Um, and the other thing is when I think about a home page. And I see this a lot more, you know, when I do work for for small businesses too, right? And I have a roofer, for example, and they do roof repairs and roof replacements and things like that. I'm going to have pages for that. I'm not going to optimize the homepage for those terms. I'm going to optimize the homepage for the brand name, right? You know, so that's one thing that I think about the homepage too is is a lot of people will try to kind of, uh, how do I make the homepage optimized for all of the keywords that I write about as an author? And that's not the case. You know, I think really ultimately you want that homepage to reflect just your brand name, which for authors is really,
0: it's you. Right, and, and I really want to underline that. Your homepage really only needs to rank for one search term and that is your first name and your last name. That's it. If it ranks for those things, it's a successful search optimization. And if it doesn't rank for those things, it's a failed search engine optimization. And I see a lot of authors whose home pages don't rank for their name, but their about page does. You're like, why would someone's homepage not rank for their name when their about page does? And it's because they wrote their homepage in first person and their name doesn't exist anywhere on their homepage except for maybe in a graphic that Google doesn't read. And they're like, welcome to my website. It's like, no, take that letter off, nobody reads it. You need to have your own name on your website. And I will say another reason, sometimes people wanna to go to your website to make sure they're spelling your name right and they're gonna copy and paste it into something else. So for them too, have your, your own name on your homepage, and the about page too, it's, it's not bad to rank for your name. And if you do a really good job optimizing for your name, what Google will give visitors is not just the homepage, but it'll also give them several pages underneath that. So it'll show the about page and the books page as well. But uh, yeah, you want to have, if your name is John Smith, don't say welcome to my website. You want to have John Smith is an author who writes, you know, dragon books or, or whatever your name is. So let's quickly go to the About page. About page is very similar to the homepage, and it's a lot easier. And really, my main tip here is again, the goal is to rank for your name, and maybe also the word bio. You know, sometimes I'll be doing, I'll be interviewing an author. I'm doing some research. I'm wanting to get to their About page quickly. What I recommend is that you have a short bio on your homepage. That's a sentence or two, and then there's like a Read More link, or you know, more info. And then they click that, and then it takes them to the full About page where that you know, it's got your long extended. Where you went to college bio that can be used for people doing research about you.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, and one thing I think, too, is it's it's important not to have multiple pages on your website all ranking for the same exact term. Right. Because that helps kind of confuse Google a little bit. It's like, well, which page should we be presenting? You know, and I know some of the recent uh, updates that they've gone through have really started to trim down. It's like, oh, you, well, you have multiple pages ranking for a certain term. You know, well, we need to pick one which we think is best. Right. And what you want to do is make sure that you're defining which one you think is best. You know, so it's, it's a, you know, maybe there is the variation of your name bio you know, that you're really going to target for, you know, your about page or whatever too. But I think it's even okay sometimes to have pages that you you don't necessarily want to have rank for anything. You know, an about page could be one of those things. Like if you're ranking your homepage for your name, maybe the about page doesn't need to.
0: One way I like to think about it is in terms of points, like you have a bucket and the page that ranks the highest on Google for a search in certain phrase is the page with the most points in the bucket. Like Each point is a stone and you do good SEO things, you put stones in the bucket and you do bad SEO things, you take stones out of the bucket. And when you have more than one page, trying to rank for the same phrase you have multiple buckets and so instead of one bucket with 50 stones you have two buckets of 25 stones and if Amazon has a bucket for your name with 40 stones guess what they're going to outrank both of those 25 stone buckets because <laughs> they have more points and yet if you com- were to combine those pages you might be able to outrank Amazon and you may be like why do i want to outrank Amazon why not just send people straight to Amazon it's like because if Amazon ranks for your name, they control your name. That's a scary thing for them to control your reputation. What if you get on bad terms with Amazon? Maybe. What if you wanna start selling through some other bookstore? If people are coming to your website first, you have the opportunity to get them on your email list, you get the opportunity to get an affiliate commission for sending them to Amazon. Why send them to Amazon for free when you can, can get paid to send them to Amazon? It's really important for you to own your own brand and for people to be able to find you directly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's huge. that That's something I even see even across social media and everything too is is that a lot of these other websites, while they're great, they can provide great traction for you. That's rented space. You know, so your own website is the property that you own, and nobody else can impact that, right? So yeah, very important to make sure that that's the central place that traffic is getting driven to for you.
0: And rented space is the nice term because really you're not paying for it. It's really sharecropped space. (laughs) You're not even, you don't even have the rights as a tenant on Facebook. If they want to kick you off, if they want to silence you, doesn't matter who you are, uh, they have the ability to do that. So we talked about ranking for your own name and, you know, you want your homepage to rank for your own name, maybe your about page, maybe not. Uh, The other term that's really important for authors to rank for is their book title. And this is where, uh, you know, the other, you know, Good group of authors that fail at SEO is where they kind of fall off the cliff on the other side. And so some don't rank for their own name. And if you don't rank for your own name, you'll never rank for, for your book. Uh, but others don't rank for their book title. In fact, that's part of the reason why uh, I helped develop my book table back in the day, which is the number one WordPress plugin uh, for authors to create bookstores was because what authors were doing is they were creating a books page that listed all of their books And you're like, well, why not do that, right? That seems like an easy way to build a website. Well, the problem is if you have 10 books and you have one page with all 10 books on there, you are not giving Google a single bucket to send people to. Yeah, that page is not optimized for any of the books. (laughs) Right, it's like, it's an arrow pointing in 10 different directions, which is a dot, (laughs) especially from far away. It's okay to have a books page that lists all of your books. But what I recommend is it's just a cover, maybe a sentence or two, and then you click on that book cover or you click read more and it takes you to a page specifically for just that book. And you have one page on your website where all of the resources for that book are. It's where the discussion guides are. It's where the buy buttons are. It's where the you know back cover copy is. It's where people can download the map of your fantasy world. It's where people can download the checklist for your parenting book. Right? All of that lives on just one page of your website. And if you can do this, if you can rank for your book title, you literally make more money. Because if people go to your book page on your website first and then click to Amazon from your website, assuming that you signed up for an affiliate program, you get an, basically double the money <laughs> if you're traditionally published. Uh, you get you know a million times more because you've already been paid for your sales. So the only way you make more money is if you can rank for your book on Google and it's, it's really powerful. So let's talk through kind of ways of optimizing those individual book pages.
1: Sure. And I agree 100% that, that that's the place where it's it's the single resource for everything there needs to be about your book, right? You know, throwing things like, you know, if you're guest posting on other people's websites about it, doing interviews, podcasts, whatever, you know, that that's the place for all those links and stuff too. And I see a lot of people say, well, I have a page here that are links to the podcast and stuff, right, that, that I've done. Well, again, kind of bad idea because that doesn't say anything about what that is. You're not gonna Going to rank for podcasts, I guess, post on. You know, you're going to rank for the topic that you're talking about. And if it's relevant to your new book, it needs to be on that page. You know, and again, I I'd kind of go back to. What is Google trying to provide? They're trying to provide the best possible answer and resource they can. You know, so that page needs to reflect that. So if if it does have everything that's on there, everything that you have that's going to be related to your book, that's a big thing. The one thing I would caution against, though, too, is uh, trying to strike the balance between providing everything and creating a page that's just too cluttered. Right, because that becomes not useful. You start to encounter things like high balance rate because, like, ah, you know, what am I looking at? <laughs> you know, um, so so it's important to strike a balance in there with how am I providing enough resources and structuring and organizing it in a nice, clean way that's you know easy for somebody to be able to use and consume.
0: That's right, and the way to do that is to give the text space to breathe. Just because a page is a long page. Doesn't mean that it needs to all be squished together. Another kind of old concept that has died, but you still hear people use this phrase is "above the fold," which is this deliciously old-fashioned phrase. So, and it was like, "What above the fold? What does that mean?" Well, back in the day, there were these like pieces of paper that you could buy that had the news from yesterday on it. So you, it's, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon, and this was the news of the day before, and you they would have these metal boxes and they're called newspapers and they would put the newspaper in the metal box and one of them would be folded in half kind of pointing towards the glass you could read the you know first story on the front page headline and the first few paragraphs for free just working walking past the newsstand and i haven't seen one of these i can't remember last
1: oh forever
0: when i was a kid right you don't see these anymore and there's no fold on websites it used to be like oh well when somebody loads it on their computer screen the fold is what they see before they start scrolling and it's like that's not true, right? Most people visiting your website are visiting on the tiny little phone. <laughs> it's like the fold is immediate. And it used to be that scrolling down was a real hassle. You had to go and find the little down arrow on Windows 95 and click it, click it, click it to scroll down. Right now, scrolling is just a wave of the hand. It's very easy, it's very intuitive, and people will scroll, for miles on Instagram and Facebook. (laughs) Literally, they'll spend an hour doom scrolling after one depressing news article they can't do anything about after another depressing news article they can't do anything about and they just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. So don't be afraid to have a really long page. And if you are gonna have a long page, and this takes us kind of into some of the technical elements of search engine optimization, a key element is what's called a heading. And this is something you can very easily add in WordPress and all the other platforms. So this isn't some magical WordPress thing. They all do it. And you want to use heading two for your kind of in-text headings. And that's where you break up the text. So if you think of a Wikipedia page, right? The Wikipedia page can be really long. Headings are that big text that kind of floats to the left that tells you, you know, history of the Byzantine Empire. Economy of, you know, Byzantine Empire. And you can keep scrolling and learning more and more about The byzantine empire and at the top sometimes there's an index where it's like here are all the things in this post and that's what helps make that longer post still approachable for humans and why if you type in byzantine empire into google the wikipedia page ranks number one (laughs) because wikipedia is really good seo and they really are designed for answering that question uh, that the person is asking
1: Yeah. And I think, too, even those uh, heading sections, the the H2 heading sections and stuff, I I think of each one of those as as a little bucket. And from a structural perspective, too, important to have you know, certain keywords in some of those heading texts and stuff like that as well, too. So you know, not every one, but you know, maybe one of those heading texts, you know, should contain the name of the book as well, if that's the big focus keyword, you know, if there are other sections as to try to try not to be too generic, you know, I mean, if you're writing about, you know, the World War Two history, or something like that, you know, maybe use World War Two history is is one of the, you know, one of the header text things or something, you know, but use kind of related keywords there, especially semantic really related keywords. Words that helps kind of give Google a better understanding of what the page is about, and I think of those sections too is uh, probably in the range of at least 150 to maybe 300 words or so of text per heading. You know, if, if you can if you can do that. Uh, where it makes sense and uh, and then try to make the stuff easily scannable, right now you got, I think you just mentioned to kind of let the text breathe a little bit, you know so it's not just like how do I create a big long text page broken up by a few headers? you know if, if there's a section where you have some bullet points or you know add some images and stuff, that kind of stuff really helps out quite a bit too.
0: It does. And it's not just better for Google. It's also better for humans, which is the whole point. Google's very, or tries to be very human centric and you get bonus points for the words that you put into your headings. <laughs> so, but you can get, you know, it, don't do it every heading. So, if, you know, you're trying to rank for your book title. Don't put your book title in every heading of your book page.
1: Yeah. It's the over keyword stuffing is kind of a killer. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so th- there's a good balance there. And there are tools that will help you know if you have a good balance. And the the gold standard tool that pretty much everybody uses, not really everybody, but it's the most popular by far, is a WordPress SEO tool. So again, one of the big benefits of using regular WordPress.org is that you get to use the very best tools, and it's free. It's called Yoast SEO, and pretty much every professional I know <laughs> uses Yoast SEO, And because it's really, really good. And it does what other plugins that are very expensive do, and it does for free. Um, And Yoast SEO will analyze your page and tell you if you have the right balance. If you're using a keyword too much, using a keyword uh, too little. So we've talked about the homepage and about page, talked about the book pages. Now let's change gears a little bit and talk about blog posts. Now, every author is gonna have a homepage and book page, but not every author should have a blog post. So for those of you who are novelists, Blogs are not going to be a source of sales. Let me say this again. Blogs are not going to be a source of sales. If you're writing cozy romance, there's really no blog post that you can write that is gonna be a good source of sales compared to something else you can do at that time. You're better off writing short stories or doing something else. (laughs) So there was a big push to get novelists into blogging and it didn't work for them because a lot of them started writing about writing, which is like, you know, a a filmmaker writing, uh, talking about making a movie, right? For a while, it was interesting. You got some DVDs 10, 15 years ago and there was director's commentary. You're like, ooh, this is cool. But after you watched one or two director's commentaries, you got bored because you don't care. You're not gonna make a movie and everybody's the same way with your writing advice on writing. (laughs) They don't care uh, how you wrote your book. They just want to enjoy the story. There are blog posts that you can write for your existing fans, but they're not gonna help drive sales. Uh, So the one thing I would say if you're a novelist that you can blog about, if you want to have a blog and you don't need to have one, is a blog where you answer reader questions. if you get the same question over and over again. And not like the, I don't know what question to ask you, so I'm going to ask you where your ideas come from question. But like, why did Sarah have to die, right? If you get a, somebody's emailing you that every week because Sarah is a beloved character and she died in book two. Then write a blog post saying why Sarah had to die and then you can just redirect everyone to that one good answer to the question. And you know, people may be typing that into Google. Why did Sarah have to die in John Smith's book? And then they get your result and they go to the page. It'll make them a deeper fan, maybe get them on your email list, but it won't directly lead to book sales. Now nonfiction is a whole different game. (laughs) With nonfiction, you can build from scratch an empire just with blogging. So uh, Dan, I know you work with a lot of uh, nonfiction authors who do this. So walk us through kind of the strategy that you recommend nonfiction authors take with their blogs to get them to rank on Google.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I think the big thing is, and it goes back to
0: some of that keyword research, right?
1: You know, you talk about the the questions, you know, the even for novelists, you know, that people may have, a, why did so and so have to die? And, you know, uh, you know, the, the big thing too, even with nonfiction writers is, is that, Whatever topic you're writing about, if, you, if you're writing about dealing with trauma, for example, you know, people are out there on Google asking questions, right? You know, you know, how do, how do I deal with, you know, depression after, you know, whatever event happened in my life, you know, people are asking questions like that on Google, And there's ways to find those questions. You know, so I think especially for a nonfiction writer, one of the keys is, is, is getting in some of that keyword research up front to find the questions that people are actually asking Google do a little bit of research yourself to see what other pages may be ranking for those questions and stuff like that already. And then when you're creating the blog post, you know, how do you create the best resource that answers that question, right? And it's not about like copy everybody else, but it's about how, how, you know, let me take the filter of my knowledge and experience and the things that I write about and stuff and my angle and everything. And I'll create a better resource because I want to have the best resource that Google looks at and goes, yes. This is where we want to send people when they ask this
0: question. I want you all to hear what he said. He said, start with keyword research. This is the most common mistake. People write the post and then they try to do the key- the keyword optimization. And that is backwards, backwards, backwards backwards. You've got to start with the question before you write the answer. And if you're writing the answer and then trying to figure out what the question is, you're not going to have a successful blog. So uh, so Dan, let's dive into how to do that. Right, so my favorite way, but this is kind of more of an advanced technique, is you are already interacting with your target audience and they are asking you questions, right? This is why I make it really easy for people to ask me questions on the podcast. You don't have to be a patron. You don't have to be a mastermind. Anybody can go to authormedia.com and ask a question because I want to know the questions that listeners are asking because all of our podcast episodes are also blog posts. And if you're asking that question, chances are other people are asking that question too. But what what about for the person who doesn't already have an audience? They already don't have that relationship where people feel comfortable coming to them and asking them a question. How would you recommend that they do their keyword research?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think those readers asking questions is that's absolutely huge. Right. You know, and, and you can get the same thing out on social media and stuff too, and use that as a resource to go out and kind of, kind of crowdsource like, Hey, what questions do you have about trauma or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever my topic is, but I'm kind of a a data nerd. Right. And, and I think that's one of the awesome things about all of this is, is there's so much data out there and available. There's websites, I think, like uh, like Answer the Public, uh, where you can go in and, and type in some keywords and stuff, and and it'll produce a, you know a list of all the questions that people are asking related to that topic and stuff. So you can kind of go through and say, hey, what are some of these top questions? What are ones that I can uh, pick an answer? I mean, spend five minutes on that website, and you probably have a list of your next 20 or 25 blog posts, right? Uh, I also use tools like uh, SEMrush, Rush, right? And that could be a premium tool, and it'll have some cheaper and free plants and everything too as well. Uh, you know, it can get pretty expensive depending on how much you do, but uh, but it's a great tool for doing some of this keyword research and digging in and really just producing lists of questions. And, and one of the things I love about that is because then I can start to filter things like how often does this question get asked, right? So I can see the monthly key, you know, search volume for terms like that uh, and even what the competitive density is out there. You know, so so I can identify some of the best opportunities to say, well, if I can answer this question, then I know I can actually drive X amount of traffic to my website every month, (laughs) you know? Uh, So there's some really great tools.
0: So I, I want to zoom in on Answer the Public because this is a great free tool. It's very fun. And while you were talking, I typed in the phrase parenting a toddler. So I was just curious. I, don't worry. I'm not starting a parenting blog. But if I were, this is a great place to get ideas of the phrases people are already typing into Google. Right? So instead of trying to get people to type something into Google, you're like, what are people already typing into Google? How can I provide an answer to that? So I'm seeing things like parenting a toddler and a baby, and I'm like, oh, dude, tell me more. <laughs> this is a phrase I'd love to see, you know, what people have, or parenting a toddler with ADHD. And it's like, oh, I'd never thought about that. it's like, and then I'm like, don't all toddlers have ADHD? <laughs> like, do they, any of them focus? Um, but you can dig deeper and deeper and start to see the sorts of specific questions because it's going to be very hard for you to rank for broad phrases. And and we probably should have started with this. You're not going to rank for Byzantium, right? Wikipedia already ranks for Byzantium, some broad category. Parenting.com is going to rank for parenting. But you could rank for a really specific question that people are asking. And people, when they go to Google nowadays, they're asking really specific questions. And they're typing in lots and lots of words. And when you hear people like Dan and I use the phrase keyword, we don't mean keyword as in like a single word. What we're meaning really is key phrase, which is a whole bunch of words all together. So somebody types in, how do I parent a toddler and a baby, right? They type in that whole question into Google. That's the quote keyword unquote that you're trying to rank for. So if you're wanting to get into blogging, I encourage you to spend some time on just Exploring Answer the Public, because this is a really great uh, free place to do it. And then what Dan was talking about on social media, good places, Facebook groups, you can look at the questions people are asking on Facebook groups, and you can give a more complete answer. If somebody asks a question on Facebook, they tend to get lots of really short answers, most of which are really awful. And that's your opportunity to be like, hey, I just wrote a blog post for you. Here's the answer. And it's a long, complete answer to the question rather than little bits of information, some of which is true, some of which is untrue, and you're not sure which is which.
1: Yeah. And I'll, I'll add to, I think one of the big keys to that is not only going out and finding those questions, because there's a lot of questions there that kind of pique your interest, right? You know, the, the parenting toddlers and babies, you know, uh, but take that and then go do those searches so that you can see what other pages are ranking for, because you want to kind of evaluate a little bit, you know, why are these ones ranking on the first page of Google for this answer, right? And, and then kind of go back to that whole idea, how can I create a better resource?
0: So like, for instance, let's say you want to write a recipe and you want your recipe to rank on Google. One of the things that you will find is that the recipes that rank best on Google are recipes that open with a story and information about the recipe, much to the chagrin of recipe searchers, right? People searching for recipes are just wanting the recipe. They are not wanting the life story of the person who wrote the recipe. But because Google is looking for longer, more substantive content, that longer post outranks the do this and make brownies, right? First, you're like, when I was a child, I made brownies with my grandmother, blah, blah, blah. And the reason why they do that is because it works. And so instead of shaking your fist, like, Google, just give me the recipe. Instead, you, you can't change Google, but you can dance to the way that the world is rather than trying to change the world. There are times to try to change the world, and there are times to try to accept uh, the world as it is. And wisdom is knowing which is which. Uh, Dan, do you have any other, um, I'll have a link to SEMrush as well. Any other tools for doing keyword research?
1: I I think I really like the idea of using your own analytics as well too, right? And and then these are some of the, you know, other free tools out there, right? You know, I'm, I'm pretty regular about, you know, how do I check my own Google analytics to see terms and things that my website is starting to rank for, you know, how people are getting to my website, you know, which pages they're landing on, you know, they're popular. You know, and, and I know we can we can dig into this a little bit more as well too, but you know, I love looking at like what, what are the over the last three months, what are the top ten most popular blog posts on my website right now? You know, and, and those things will give you some signals and some ideas as far as what's working. Google has another great tool. Uh, Used to be called Webmaster Tools. It's called uh, Google Search Console now, and that's a fantastic tool for really kind of digging in even more and understanding the the search data related to your website. Because it'll give you a list of the terms that you're actually ranking for, where you're ranking on page one or page ten, and it lets you know how much traffic you're getting. You know what the click-through rate is. You know things things like that, which is really valuable to, again, kind of uncover some of those kind of key words that you might be right on the edge for. Because I also like to look for things, uh, if you're looking to really get ranked for something, what are some of the terms that you find, like in Google Search Console, that you're ranking on page two and three for, because you're up there, but you know, wh- where's the best place to hide a dead body? Page two
0: of Google, right? Because nobody looks there, <laughs> you know? and And one really solid strategy is to take an old blog post that's ranking on page two of Google and expand it refresh it, go and rework it to make it be better. And then suddenly you may find yourself growing uh, to spot number one, which again is how Wikipedia grows to be stopped. Spot number one is that every Wikipedia page is constantly being improved. A lot of people approach their blogs with this um, paper mindset. It's like, once the blog is written, it can never be touched again. (laughs) So it's like, says who? Like, How's that beneficial, right? Somebody visiting your blog in five years wants an up-to-date answer to their question. They're not wanting some answer with a time capsule. So update it. Google reward you. Your readers will reward you. And there's no paper that will cry <laughs> because no paper is being harmed in the creation of this blog post.
1: Right. Yeah. And I know a lot of writers will look at that too and go, well, what do I do? Do I republish that? Or, you know, it's like, no, you just keep the same blog post, same link for it and everything too, but you can update the post, right? And do some of that optimization. You know, maybe, maybe there's some additional, maybe an extra little subheading that you can add into it that might actually help it out a little bit or, you know, just add headings, you know, <laughs> that, that may not have been there in the first place. You know, some of that kind of optimization can then really kind of then give you, give you that boost that you're looking
0: for for sure. And one thing I often do if I go in and substantially update a post, not little tweaks to fix the SEO, but if I went in and rewrote it, I'll also update the date so it shows as today's date. It doesn't change the URL, so that stays the same, which is important. But because it's today's date, it now shows up on my homepage until it gets pushed off again. And it kind of acts as a new post for people who are new because one of the things you'll find as an author is that you have a lot of people who are new. Right, Some of you listening to this podcast have been listening for seven years. Some of you listening to this podcast, this is the first ever episode you've ever heard. And there's all variations in between. And we cover topics over again. We've covered SEO before. We did it seven years ago. It's been too long. But all of these things we circle back around because there's new people who didn't hear it uh, the first time. Uh, We're running out of time, but I do want to talk quickly about uh, some of the technical elements. So we talked about the uh, headings. The two other on-page technical elements I think that are important to at least address is the title, the meta title, which again, if you're using Yoast SEO will really help you optimize a good title. This is that big blue text that shows up on Google when somebody does a search and shows all the results. There's the big blue text, that's the title, and then there's the little paragraph, that's the meta description. You control both of those in yoast there are rules on how many characters those can be and if you're using yoast seo or some similar plugin it will let you know what those rules are because they sometimes they change a little bit and but the plugins will always be up to date and remember write for the humans first but put the keyword if you want to rank for a keyword make sure it's in the title and make sure it's in the description because if a human is scrolling past results and they don't see the phrase they type bolded they're less likely to click on it which will cause your site to actually fall in the rankings, because another thing Google looks at is how many times a result gets clicked on on their pages. Yeah. And and I'll add to that
1: a little bit too, because Yoast does a good job of really kind of showing you what that little little snippet looks like, right? And I know a lot of people, they'll kind of default to letting just the the regular text fall into the description, which is the first so many characters of the blog post. And that's probably one of the worst things you can do, because really, if you think about what that snippet is and how that shows up in the Google search results, right? Imagine it from the other side, not your side is the writer, right? But the other side of the user who's doing the search, they're seeing a result on a Google Google search page, right? So that description there in particular, the title too, but really that description, that's your sales pitch to get them to take the next action that you want them to take, which is click on this one that comes to my website. Once they're on their website, hopefully your blog post can kind of keep their interest or whatever too. But but that description, that I think that's a big, Uh, mental shift that I see a lot of people need to take is that description there. That's the sales pitch to get them to click.
0: And if you let Google pick the text, which is what happens if you leave the description field blank, Google can pull that text from any part of your web page it wants to, including a comment. It doesn't happen very often, but now you've completely lost control. One step of control is letting a, a robot you know, pick the text, you know, Google's bot. But it's even scarier when a robot is picking text from some other human that you don't know and maybe didn't even approve, that can be really, really bad. So uh, hopefully this gives you an idea of some on-page elements. The kind of quick summary is use Yoast <laughs> and um, do your research ahead of time. If you just do those two things for, for each page, you're gonna see such better results. If, if you know ahead of time what that keyword is that you're going to rank for and you start with the question, and then write the answer. This doesn't seem complicated, and yet, at least for most authors that I've worked with, they write the answer first and then try to find the question. So real quick though, let's talk about off-page SEO. This is that other part of SEO, which is the internet voting on your website and saying this is a good website, because there are a lot of bad websites in the world, and there's a lot of nonsense in the world. And the way that Google sorts There's a lot of things that influences it, but one of the things that it looks at is other websites linking to your website. So Dan, tell us a little bit about kind of link building. How do you go about it? Yeah, so there's a lot of ways we
1: could do that, right? And there's there are different kinds of tactics that I would use in different situations, you know, depending on a you know small business looking for local SEO or whatever too. But but really, what it gets down to is is when you're creating links, especially for writers, uh, one of the big things, and I think the easiest ways to to deal with this is is things like guest post, right? Is uh, is Go do the guest post. Uh, you know, put yourself out there to as an author interview for uh, for other bloggers and stuff to to talk to you about you know your book and the history there. You know, don't hesitate to to do YouTube things and you know podcasts and and all that stuff because every single one of those links can provide some really good high value stuff. And I also like to I like to try to bucket things too because I know the Google algorithms kind of love to see some of the variety, right? You know, a lot of blogs from a Google authority perspective. I'm um, doing the air quotes here, right? It, you know, a lot of blogs, may be a little bit lower authority, right? And then there's bigger websites, you know, the, uh, the big, you know, news websites are going to be very high authority. You know, at least from you know overall perspective and stuff, right? Uh, the, with how they rank rank things, you know. So if you can even look for ways to get yourself out there, not only to do guest posts on other people's blogs, but write for other websites like online magazines and things like that. You know, there's uh, I know I work with a lot of Christian writers and stuff. You know, so you know things like Patheos and Crosswalk and stuff like that too are, are big, bigger, higher authority websites. Uh, but if you can get a variety of different types of links uh, that do that kind of pointing back. That's, uh, that's really ideal because it sends a lot of the really right signals.
0: That's right. This is one way where the mainstream media actually influences what the search results pages show because Google uh, causes a link from a New York Times or New York Post article to be worth, worth maybe a 1,000 po- links from bloggers. So when we were talking about writing guest blog posts, that's good, but writing an op-ed for the New York Times or uh, writing an op-ed for your local newspaper, uh, which you may be surprised, very easy, depending on your topic, and especially you know, especially if you're willing to go through the, the correct process and you're sending the queries and you're pitching them correctly, um, that link can be incredibly valuable. And uh, one thing you said really quickly, I want to underline, guesting on a podcast almost always leads to a link back to your website. right? If you go to authormedia.com and you pull up the blog post for this episode, what are you going to find? You're going to find a link to Fist Bump Media (laughs) because every time I have a guest on, I link back to their website. And this isn't some special thing that happens on this podcast. It's something that happens on pretty much every podcast. And so one of the advantages of writing guest posts and being a guest on podcasts is not just reaching that audience, but that forever after, it increases the authority of your website. And over time, if you keep doing it, that authority builds and builds and builds until it becomes a lot easier for your new posts to rank because you've built that authority. So before we go, one question I should ask is what are some things you've had to learn the hard way? What are some mistakes you've made in SEO uh, that you want to help our listeners not make?
1: I think one of the biggest mistakes that I made is is really the the mindset of the SEO is a one time event right. Uh, you know, I, th- I think working with the the search engines and, you know, trying to figure out what works, it's an ongoing process. I think it's a, it's a constant process of testing things, uh, continual improvement stuff, right. And that's why I recommend things like go back and, and look at your top 10 blog posts, you know, uh, over the last three months, you know, for, from a track traffic perspective, you know, how can you optimize those to, to get better rankings on them and stuff and, and drive even more traffic. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, to have this idea that, uh, SEO is, is the thing that you do. Oh, I installed the Yoast plugin. So my SEO is good. No, it's, it's not a one time <laughs> event. It's not a, it's not a thing that you just do to a blog post. You know, it's, it's really kind of thinking about, uh, how am I going to, to, to build the brand really, you know, and as, as a writer, that brand is you. Right. And I think kind of piggybacking on that, too, you know, when I started as a blogger, you know, I was I was writing about all kinds of things, but I I really kind of lacked focus. You know, and and for me, uh, with my with my personal writing, you know, I started zeroing in on on, uh, dealing with issues like global poverty and stuff, too. And when I started getting that kind of focus, uh, that's one thing that really helped the search engines understand what I was really about. And those are things that I would start to rank for. I was listening to one of uh, the the novel marketing podcasts not too long ago, talking about the tagline, right? Having like an author tagline, and and one thing I love about that is 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 that it does it helps you kind of drive what that focus is in helping understand what you're about because that's what the the search engines want to try to figure out. If you send out a confusing message and you're just trying to rank for all the keywords, that's not going to work. But if you if you bring in focus, in uh, in direction, and just be very intentional and and kind of nurture it like the, the, the growing toddler that it is, <laughs> you know, your website, um, it, you, know, you know, you'll reap some nice rewards, but you have to be very
0: intentional and have that focus. It's very well said because you're, to rank on Google, Google has to see you as the number one resource in the whole world on that topic. And that requires an great deal of focus, right? You're not going to be the number one resource in the world for every topic, but you can be the number one resource in the world for a topic. And so going through that branding process, that focusing process uh, is really painful because it means saying no a lot. But But the reward for saying no to all those things that you're not is that you have a very clear answer for what you are. So that's a great place to end it. Dan, where can people find out more about you?
1: At fistbumpmedia.com. dot com, uh, and I was thinking I have a uh, have a resource too, uh, just a just a simple page that has I think several resources uh, that we've used uh, to to provide for uh, writers that we work with uh, that help kind of uh, hammer down some of this SEO stuff and help make sense of it, so that it's not so technical and confusing and stuff too. So I'll make sure you know we, we share that with you there in the show notes and everything as well too. But uh, uh, fistbumpmedia. dot is where we're at.
0: All right, Dan King, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. Our sponsor today is the Seven Secrets of Amazing Author Websites course. If you're wanting help building an author website in this course, I walk you through the process step by step. I cannot tell you how many authors have built their own website after taking this course. Uh, Many who thought they never could do it. And the best part is... The Seven Secrets of Amazing Author Websites course is absolutely free. You can get it uh, for free. It is the one free course that we offer here at Author Media. And you can find out more at authormedia.com. Just go to courses and it's the free one, or we will have a link in the show notes. Our featured patron today is C.L.R. Peterson, author of Lucia's Renaissance. Heresy is fatal in late Renaissance Italy, so only a suicidal zealot would so much as whisper the name of Martin Luther. After Luther's ideas ignite a young girl's faith, she must choose, abandon her beliefs, or risk her life in the turbulent world of late 16th century Italy. Thank you, C.L.R. Peterson, for being a patron of the podcast, helping support the show, helping keep these episodes coming. Every week. I really, really appreciate it. And I appreciate everyone else who supports the podcast. Uh, if you can't afford to become a patron, but you still want to help the show, you can just leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Audible. You've been listening to Thomas Umstadt Jr. and Dan King on the Novel Marketing Podcast. The audio for today's episode was edited by William Umstadt. The blog version is by Shauna Latelier, who works hard to make sure all of our blog posts our search engine optimized. And if you want to find the audio version of this, you'll find it embedded in that blog post as well as buttons to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Audible, and on all of the other podcast apps. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.